and welcome to the Deep Jam BR podcast. My name's Sean, and joining me as always is the one and only Dante Boffer, Mr. Boffer, my man. How are we? I'm so energized, Sean. I've had, yeah, I've had lots of coffee today, and just before, my lovely girlfriend and I made vegan sausage rolls and I had approximately 17 sausage rolls. So I'm all hopped up on coffee and uh, veggie delights, savory plant-based meats. Dude, that is, uh, that's amazing. That is so much more healthier than me who I just had a lovely sour beer. It was a sour grape beer and haven't oh. had dinner yet. Um, what, um, what, what brand was it? Was it Colonial? No, nah, no, nah, nah. I do love the Colonial Sour, but this is... Have you heard of Carwin Sellers in Thornbury? I do know Carwin Sellers. My cousin, uh, who you actually met, Mark. <laughs> Shout out to Mark. He's not listening. He's not listening. He lives, he lives down the road from Carwin, and I have frequented it with him and his friends. Actually, also a friend of yours, Candice, uh, oh, once yeah? or twice. And Candice's boyfriend, Sam. Anyway... <laughs> Enough yeah. talk about our social lives of people who don't know the people that we're talking about. Yeah, no, but Carwin's <laughs> nice. So uh, it was one of those fancy ones, like imported from, I think it was from California. So how about that mm. thing? I'll never remember and we'll never get ever again. It was always amazing. I was in WA a few weeks ago yeah. on a little jaunt and I was in a small town in the southwest of WA. Mm. And they had a farmer's market on and I went to the farmer's market and I bought hemp beers mm. from this lovely man. And I had like a little taste test and I was like, ooh, lovely. I'm into this. <laughs> um, and then I took it home. I bought two bottles, took them home and we'll, we were going to have like a little boozy night and I took one sip of it and I was like, I can't drink this. <laughs> so if you're out there and you're interested in experimenting with hemp based beers my advice don't <laughs> i i did actually see a hemp based beer at carmen cells for those people that don't know what it is it is very experimental very different very uh they pride themselves on having complete wacky beers and everything you could ever dream of um yeah but i stayed away from the hemp beers and thanks to you i will now stay away from them permanently yeah uh, i mean like you know to each their own but don't bother. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, what are we going to talk about today, basketball-wise? So we're doing our part two of two uh, for our preseason over-under review. Mm-hmm. The Western Conference this time, last week, well, not last week. Well, it wasn't last week. It was last week. Last mm-hmm. episode, we did the Eastern Conference. Today, we're going to run through all 15 teams in the West uh, and look at the preseason over under that Vegas gave each team. Uh, we did an episode before the season started where we went through and said whether we thought it was going to be over or under the Vegas win total. Uh, and so we're basically running through today and correcting our mistakes, assessing where we went wrong and tallying up. So in order to do that, obviously with the season suspended, not everyone has played the same amount of games. So we've taken each team's win percentage and extrapolated that out to an 82-game season and used that win number as the, the total that they um, finished with. So we'll be, you know, for example, saying that the Golden State Warriors, spoiler alert, won 19 games. Obviously, they only won 15, but over the course of 82 games, they would have won 19 with their win percentage. Hmm. 
Uh, just before we get started on those Golden State Warriors, um, a bit of a recap for the last episode. If you haven't heard it, which I would definitely recommend people listen to, but um, in terms of record, Dante and I, obviously, we pro- we're podcasters. We pride ourselves on talking about basketball. And in terms of win percentage between us and our over-unders, Dante on the Eastern Conference went four, one, and ten losses, and I went mm, seven, tasty. one, and seven losses. So I've got a three-game win ahead of you, um, with both of us having the draw on Cleveland, who hit their over-under uh, on the head. Should we get into it? I'm really looking forward to making up some ground on you. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> Four out of 15, correct. That's right. Next I mean, time, I'm, I'm still under half, so... I mean, Next I'm, time I say something, don't listen to me because I'm wrong. <laughs> next time I, I say something, I am about. literally exactly 500. So, look, I'm a playoff team in the East. That's a lock uh, and probably just take half my bets. But the Golden State Warriors, we were both right. Dante, can you give us the numbers? So, the Golden State Warriors were set a tasty, tantalizing preseason win total of 47. And this caused much <laughs> consternation between the two of us because whilst I don't think we thought there would be 19 wins bad, I think we both thought that there was enough here. And if the listener will remember back to all the way in like August, all the narrative surrounding this team was like, this is Steph Curry's MVP reprisal. He's coming back and it's going to be like an all-time offensive dynamo season from Steph. Obviously, events transpired that didn't happen. Um, and so they are left with a decimated team that for most of the season um, was comprised with people who probably won't be in the league um, or at the very least playing minutes next year. So we both hit the under ultimately. Um, and I'm very happy to start my Western Conference um, review off with a win, a W. Yeah, well, uh, look, I remember you were hitting the under because you didn't like this team winning 47 games and you thought they were a bit of a you know, lower playoff seed if they were going to scrape into the playoffs. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I took this under thinking, look, I, I'd... I actually had a bet with a friend of mine, Jackson, if he's listening, um, at 49 and a half wins. So if Golden State can win 50 games, um, Jackson would win. If they win under 50 games, then I would win. Obviously, we're a bit stuck in limbo at the moment with the whole coronavirus delaying the season, but Golden State has a 0% chance to win 50 games, even if they win every single game for the rest of the season. And I took that under because I said, look, man, it's too risky. If one player goes down, obviously Clay's out for the whole season. If one player goes down, whether that's Steph or whether that's uh, Kevon Looney or Draymond, this team's going to get extremely thin in in a hurry. Um, and obviously Steph went down nice and early and I pretty much got that bet. But I remember saying that I was going to pick this Golden State under when you and I did the over-unders pot at 47. And I was thinking 47 is pretty much around their number. And we're never going to know what they would have been like with a fully healthy Steph. But from what the start of the season showed, I think there was a loss against the Clippers, which was to be expected. There was a loss against OKC, which was quite uh, upsetting for me to watch. I 
I've spent the last few years watching Golden State smack the shit out of OKC. Um, <laughs> and then we were down quite a bit against your Phoenix Suns before Aaron Baines fell on Steph Curry's hand and essentially ended his season apart from one game. Um, sorry, two games, one against the Washington Wizards, which, does, which doesn't really count. But look, we'll never know if a fully healthy Golden State Warriors could have hit 47. But from looking at the surrounding cast and what the rest of the team was able to do. This is this is us factoring in that we didn't know that Eric Pascal was going to be good. Um, yeah, it's uh, it doesn't look good, but I'm happy that we don't have to know the answer to that question. So from my perspective, there's a couple of... You can spin it in a negative way or a positive way. I'll start with the positive first. So like, for example, you could look at it and say it's a real positive that Jordan Poole, who they picked 30th overall or 28th overall, um, was a good enough player for them that he could average 22 minutes a game, consistent playing time that you don't usually see from a rookie pitch at the end of the first round. And he averaged almost 10 points a game. So positive. Negative. He shot 33% from the field and 28% from three. So good and bad. Pascal, we didn't know that he was going to be good because he was... Um, you know, a second round pick. Although remember when we did the draft show, this is this, he was picked with a um, straight up Draymond Green pick where the Warriors bought the second round pick so that they could take this dude. He mm. ends up averaging 14 points on almost 40 on almost 50% from the field, but he came on really strong, like averaging like 18 points through the first three months. And then he just, they just stopped playing it. Mm. Um, he, he did get injured so, a while, and it was a bit of a, na- a nagging injury. So, yeah, when he when he was back on the court, he wasn't at his full strength. And then, when you're a rookie who's just missed a bit of time, you're behind the eight ball already, being a rookie, coming back a little bit of an injury, it's very easy to slip off. So, that is, you know, you can excuse that um, in terms of a long term prospect. Yeah, definitely. And it was still over, like overall a hugely positive season. And he figures to be like a nice bench scorer for this team next season. Someone like Marquise Chris will probably make the team next season as like a maybe a backup, backup big. Mm. Um, but he, towards the end of the season, kind of like thrived in a simplified role where they just play him as an undersized five. Mm. They just decided, look, you need to play as the lone big and we'll space it out and you can just do... I was about to say do work inside. Maybe not work because I don't know that you can be that positive about him, but do something inside. You can just be inside. So there's... A position. Good, yeah, there's good things and bad things from this season. And I think you would be pretty confident that next season with a healthy Curry, Clay and Looney and maybe... Like maybe do we pencil in that Draymond Green isn't washed? Um, I wouldn't pencil it in. Yeah, I mean, that's that's rough after signing to a $100 million contract. Yeah, like there's enough. I think you saw enough from the reserves that next season you're like, yeah, this team's going to be back, uh, you know, like top four seed in the, in the West. But this season it was fucking rough. Like if you were a fan of uh, Kai Bowman, then let me tell you, this season's that's, that's for you. That's Kai Bowman to you. Let me know. Yeah. Tell you. <laughs> yeah, if you were a fan of, um, yeah. Michael former Porter. Boston College, former Boston College point guard. Then this season was for you. Who was famous for being um, in two seconds of that one Zion video on YouTube? Uh, Michael <laughs> Mulder might be the silver lining for this season because he's looking like a sort of Duncan Robinson 
light in in a handful of games. He was on a 10-day contract, which was uh, – sorry, he got onto his second 10-day contract was about to be converted to an – to a rest-of-season contract before coronavirus hit. But um, Michael Mulder looks good. Uh, but it is a bit upsetting that Michael Mulder, who was a you know a really good G League shooter, is better than the guy we picked 28th overall in... What's it, George Jordan Poole? Um, anyway, yeah. we both hit the under and we're both smiling. And I think the one thing we can learn from this, apart from Michael Mulder, is that next year's over-under is going to be super enticing. Oh, it's much like what we talked about last episode with the Hawks where yeah. that over-under was right at that point where you're like, oh, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like it was a perfectly set over-under and they failed miserably. But next season, it's going to be the same thing again where you're talking yourself into it. You're going to be like, oh, like mm. I reckon, <laughs> I reckon. Mm. All, All right, right well, let's move on yep. to miserable Minnesota. Mm. Looking at you. Carl Anthony Towns. The Twin Cities had a preseason over under of 35 and they finished an absolute downright abysmal 24. One of the lowest performing teams um, compared to their over under that wasn't decimated by injury. It turns out this team was just bad. And Dante, you forgot to mention, did you pick the over or the under for this number? Yeah. Oh, did I forget to mention or did I <laughs> deliberately not mention it? I... Hit the over, you hit the under. Ah, um, another point to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, about that catching you situation. Uh, yeah, well, I already listened to this pod. And one, you know how I said last episode, I'm, I'm grabbing a couple of quotes that I've heard from the two of us. One quote that you said is, Andrew Wiggins is going nowhere because of that awful contract. And holy mm. shit, um, he's now a Golden State Warrior. And yeah, this team... Whenever it was the same deal with Atlanta, pretty much. Whenever their star sat and wherever Carl Anthony Towns sat, they went from a respectable team to just an awful, awful, awful team. Um, and obviously, um, they might have actually, and look, they're probably not going to hit this number, but they, you know, they would have had a bit of a late season surge with the acquisition of Malik Beasley. I'm not going to mention the other guy. Um, the, you know, someone like that who can actually bolster their wing depth, but. Yeah, the season wasn't to be, and Minnesota should be kissing Carlton Town's feet every night. I don't know if that's a thing. Is that like a praise thing? Because if he it sounds like it's a um like a foot fetish thing. Yeah, it sounds a bit kinky. But look, uh, Minnesota really need to get a hurry on uh, in terms of putting a team around Carlton Towns because. This team is sort of looking a little bit like Kevin Garnett all over again. Yeah. And that obviously worked out fantastically for one team. It just wasn't the team that Kevin Garnett was drafted to. The thing that I think you ignored just then, or maybe you didn't ignore it, but you just are prepared to be a bit more merciful than I am. Um, this team was actually better defensively when Carl Anthony Town sat and it wasn't even close. Mm. They were one of the worst defensive teams in the league and that was largely because they played cat 36 minutes a game. So for 36 minutes a game, they're an absolute sieve defensively. He um, has the he out of all players. He had the ninth worst defensive rating. Um, the players around him is Trey Young, Kevin Love, Bryn Forbes, and RJ Barrett. Um, closely followed by his homie and teammate D'Angelo Russell. So I know we're talking about this season, not next season, but mm. my 
basketball philosophy is if you have two of the 15 worst individual defenders on your team as your best players playing significant minutes every night, you're probably not going to go very far. Mm. Um, they were still in that new. They were still a positive in terms of having him on the court because he was that good on offense. Like, yes, you can point to his defensive numbers, but they are a bad team, and bad teams aren't good on either side of the court. So, adding in a guy in Carlton Towns who can boost their offense so much, like it's not like yes, you can point to the defensive numbers, but I think there is not too much of a worry there. See, I disagree because no. Like none of the playoff teams um, in either the conference this year are bad defensively. Even someone like the Mavericks, who have the best offense in the league and are like only the seven seed, they're not great defensively, but they're okay. They're they're not um, they're not bad. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, like if you look at the even if you look at the bottom of the um, like the bottom of the Western Conference playoff seeds, it's um, the Rockets, the Mavs, and the Grizzlies. The Rockets. Uh, struggled a little bit on defense towards the end of the season, but that was mainly because they're giving up so many offensive rebounds close to the basket and just opponents are converting a whole lot of that. But that's a stylistic thing rather than they're just bad. Um, And then, you know, like the... um, The Grizzlies are young, the Mavericks are, you know, still young in places, but their defenses are like you know, at worst around average, whereas Minnesota was, you know, like downright terrible. Mm. Um, and they haven't been good with Cat. And having Cat now, now you're basically guaranteeing that your best lineup, at least 40% of your best lineup, is just like a not a good defensive player. Yeah, I'm not going to speak um, Russell when it comes to that. So, yeah, yeah he's kind of left in. Yeah, he's left himself indefensible. Let's move on to um, something that, for me, is a happy occasion and <laughs> a sad occasion because, on the one hand, the Phoenix Suns of this season were maybe good. I don't say that as a statement, but as a semi-question. Um, maybe they were good. Devin Booker made an all-star game. Kelly Oubre solidified himself as like one of the most exciting secondary scorers. DeAndre Ayton, when he came back from his um, diuretic-induced suspension, uh, actually started to look like really good, you know, putting up 20 and 10 and being pretty assertive on offense. Ricky Rubio averaged nine assists. There's a lot going on here that was really good. And then on the other hand, we... Um, finish the season as the 13th seed in the West. So it's kind of like, what's new? Um, We've been talking about this. Our, Actually, sorry, you, give the numbers, give the numbers. The preseason over-under was 27. And I, if for no other reason than hope, smacked the over. Uh, we ended up with 33 wins over the course of the 82-game season. So, you know, it, it, we got substantially over. The difference between 30, 27 and 33 is you know, it's, a, it's a bit um, in terms of the type of team that wins each number. So this was by far the most competent Phoenix Suns team that we've had since probably 2015, which has caused massive cause for celebration, but it's also kind of depressing and exasperating when you turn in the most competent um, 
season that you've had in five years and you're the third worst team in the conference. Yeah, like we've been talking about this throughout the season um, and obviously you were really happy at the start of the season when Aaron Baines was an MVP candidate pretty much. But We started eight and four, Sean. Eight and four. But it's not that it's not that you got bad. It's just that losing DeAndre Ayton, who you know might have been a best blessing in disguise, because then he could play pretty much five shooters and just have Devin Booker be really good, which he was really good this season and really efficient. But losing DeAndre Ayton, you know, week in July, and that's fine if Aaron Baines slots in. But then who slots in behind him? And it's Frank the Tank, which is a bit ooh. And then Aaron Baines went down for a couple of weeks, and even just a couple of weeks going down, who. Yes, he was crucial, but he was also a rotation player. Having Aaron, Bland, Aaron Baines and Czech Diallo, and I don't care how good Czech Diallo is on 2K because he's really, <laughs> really, really good on 2K. Um, if anyone's running a my league, I would suggest you sign him uh, at the start of next season because he, for some reason he's always available on a minimum. Anyway, um, it's like, like that's... It's really hard to win games when one of your positions is extremely thin and extremely weak um, just because every single night teams will come into your building and say, well, we can just go at Frank the Tank 10 times a game. And if they, if they want to get, well, not 10 times, but every, every possession down. And if they want to get rid of Frank the Tank, then they can either chuck in this sort of unproven young big and check Diallo who's pretty much a G-leaguer or slide uh, Dario Saric down to the five, which is obviously makes them small and they can't get rebounds. So, I think this is promising. Like, yes, this is a very competent team and you could only put together the 33 with an asterisk, but you could have gone much better and it wasn't your fault that you guys sort of fell from the heights of your, what was it, like eight and three. Like, it's not... Eight, yeah, eight and four start. It's not bad. I think there is a lot of stuff to build on here. Uh, it does suck that your point guard and, you know, arguably one of your better players, Naren Baines, aren't going to be good and aren't in the same timeline as your young guys. And your one of your young guys, your first overall draft pick in DeAndre Ayton, didn't exactly prove that he was better than some of the guys he was just drafted ahead of. But I think there is, there is a positive here. Um, I hit the under, so I, I don't get a point here. But I feel like I've been more positive on Phoenix this whole entire season, and you're the Phoenix fan. Part of my apprehension towards the Suns is just like not wanting to get hurt because I've talked myself into so many different iterations of the team that like, yeah, that it's legitimately just the coping mechanism. And especially because looking at, you know, I was pretty down on them. Uh, I think like the rest of the NBA watching world after what they did over the off season where, um, you know, like giving away TJ Warren for nothing. TJ Warren and a second round pick for cash considerations yeah. trading the sixth overall pick when people thought like we we're going to be able to get a, a real blue chipper um, mm. moving down to 11 and then getting Dario Saric in the trade and then using that pick to select Cam Johnson who people thought like at the very earliest was going to be maybe like around 27, 28 and a mm. lot of people had projected in the second round. Um, it didn't exactly engender a lot of confidence in me. And what was clear in the early season is that the roster construction, at least when things were going well, was really good because um, DeAndre Ayton played one game. I think he had like 22 and 13, four blocks, looked really good, and then immediately got suspended for 25 games. 
Mm. So that was that game was in a blowout win over the Kings. You read the Kings by like 30 points in Sacramento on yeah. in our first game of the season. And then Bain started playing really well. And it was we looked almost, you know, like Spursian with the ball <laughs> movement. And, you know, Baines was reminiscent of peak Duncan and Thiago split eye in the NBA finals, like at the top of the key, giving a dribble handoff to Tony Parker. Yeah. And then Baines, yeah, Baines got injured. And like you said, it was just a whole lot of flank the tank. And your point about Frank the Tank where it was like, well, when you have one player on the court who's so drastically below the average level of competence for a player at his position, it doesn't even mean that like when we played Minnesota that they can just play, they can go to Carl Anthony Towns in the post every time. It means when we play like Miami that they're like, let's just fucking run Kelly Olynyk at Frank the Tank because you can't name one player in the NBA who, like one center in the NBA who's not like at an advantage when he's defended by Frank Kaminsky because that's how bad he is. And we really like, there's nothing that you can do. And like, yeah, Diallo is interesting. And he had a couple of games where he showed some nice touch around the rim and some good touch on that, you know, face up 15 footers, but he's still, you know, bad. Um, Yeah. He still checked Diallo. And then, you know, we, we had, um, moments for the rest of the season where where it all kind of came together for like a five game stretch at a time, or you had a couple of really crazy individual performances. Um, Booker had a couple of like insane scoring games um, where he was, um, I think he was like fifty, um, like fifty forty fifty or something over mm. um, a few games, but it never coalesced in the way that you wanted it to. And even at the end of the season when Aiton um, was showing a lot more chops defensively and looking like he was more aggressive and assertive on offense because uh, for the first part of the season when he came back, my gripe was that this bloke just loves fadeaway 15-footers. Yeah. Um, and you wanted him to you know, go into the paint and get a body um, he started to do that more, but that was kind of when Booker's play started to slip a little bit and we never kind of all got on the page at the same time. And that comes back to the the, the crux of why it's so... Um, why, as a Suns fan, I'm constantly off balance because, you know, how do you reconcile the fact that this is the best season that you've had and that you maybe are genuinely... When you look at the league, maybe the Suns are like the 18th best team or like the 20th best team like they weren't terrible we were in the neighborhood of good but we were still third worst in the whole conference which is like um there's a uh, a saying from bill parcells who is a hall of fame nfl coach you are what your record says you are and at some point that's true you got to put up or shut up and we finished 13th in the west mm, yeah uh, yeah, you've put it well. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Moving on to another team facing a reckoning that they probably never thought would come. It's the San Antonio Spurs, whose um, two-decade-long streak of winning 50 games is not only over, but over by oof, heaps. Um, they had a preseason over-under of 43.5 and finished well Very under generous. at 36. Yeah, we both, we both hit um, the under before the season started. So, pats on the back for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the question was being asked preseason, like, is this the year that the Spurs slip? 
And there were kind of two camps. There was like one that was like, obviously you look at their roster. And then there was one that was like, oh, you never know. Like, you know, benefit <laughs> of the doubt. I'll never go against the Spurs until they show that I should go against them. And this, I think, was a pretty lackluster season. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, um, one of the quotes that I said when we first did this pod is that, look, I said, quote, they'll win the games that they should win. And technically, I'm still right when I say that because they did win the games that they should win. They just weren't a very good team. So they only beat like the really bad teams of the world. Um, and it's not like they were going to go into Sacramento and it's like, okay, well, the Spurs are the Spurs, Pops there, they're just going to beat the teams that are below 500. Like they really struggled. And uh, yeah, it's it's hard, like you said, to bet against a 20-year run and a 20-year playoff run. And obviously you want Greg Povich to, to do well and this might be his last season, next season might be his last season, but it's, yeah, it's looking pretty grim. But one thing I did want to talk about when it came to this San Antonio number is that it was at a 43 and a half, which is quite big, right? And when we were talking about the Atlanta number um, in the last episode, I think that's actually set a really good precedent because when you talk about Atlanta's number, and we're going to talk about it next season as well, they've got a lot of guys that could just pop and like, you know, Trey Young did. Trey Young played really well. And now they're going to have Clint Capella who could just have a steady good season. They've still got Kevin Herter. They've got their two wings. They've got guys that could just come out of nowhere. But when it comes to the Spurs team, they didn't really have one of those top tier sort of young players that could just blossom out of nowhere. Like there's, DeJounte Murray, yes. There was a lot of Derek White hype um, after that. So much Derek White hype. Yeah, I mean, the only hype is his forehead and he looks about 40. <laughs> but yeah, there's there's no real top-tier talent that could just burst out of nowhere. Like all their, quote, young guys are sort of like the Trey Lyles of the world who are, you know what they are. Um, and someone like DeJounte Murray, like I think we pretty much know who DeJounte Murray is now. There's no you know, grand prospect that he's the next Tim Duncan or he's the next Kawhi Leonard. This is, uh, this is sort of who the Spurs are. And yeah, good on us for hitting the under, but this was, this number was set way too high considering they don't have much of that top tier, um, explosive talent. Yeah. I think it was obvious in the moment that it was set way too high. Um, but I mean, there was like, there was, pre-season hype about their young guys so if you think back to the podcast that we did um around the um rookie option extensions uh looking at the contracts that murray along with jalen brown buddy Hield, and demontis sabonis got mm-hmm. um you know murray got that big contract um in, in part because there was a bit of hype around that. Like last season, he made the all-defensive team. Like he's an all-defensive second-team um, guard. His numbers defensively remain insane this season, but you kind of face the reality of he doesn't have a great handle. Um, he can't really do anything. Um, you know, if he's not shooting threes or getting to the rim, he, he doesn't have much of a, a game in, in the interim area and he's not even really that good of a three-point shooter. He, he doesn't take many at all. Mm. Um, so offensively, he's, you know, super-duper limited and doesn't give you enough, like, playmaking chops where, you know, um, someone that we just talked about, Rick Rubio, 
uh, can't shoot and is one of the worst shooters in NBA history, but averages nine assists and pushes the ball on the break and has a good feel for the game. Like Murray doesn't really have that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they played him 25 minutes a game. Like, that's not really leaning on someone who you have hold a bunch of faith in. And there was so much Derek White hype in part because of that um, series yeah, against the Nuggets in the playoffs where he, you know, took over and averaged like 20 points a game. And um, he came in this season with all of that hype and put up literally um, like his career average. <laughs> like he, like yeah. he, he, did, he did pretty much exactly the same as he did last season he came um within like half of a you know total total assist or rebound or point or whatever or mm. everything that he'd done the season before so no growth and um they also only played Derek white 24 minutes a game and mm. they surprisingly didn't let white and murray share the court um they played like almost no minutes with each other so the reality that that left you with was a lot of DeMar DeRozan um, and LaMarcus Aldridge trying to kind of like invert what their roles say they should be where like LMA started shooting threes and DeRozan completely stopped shooting threes. And it was mm-hmm. just a, it was just not um, a very functional offense for a lot of the season. Um, and yeah, that, that was, I think, quite apparent even like when looking at you know, like the start of this, the, um, so when looking at the roster, when mm-hmm. we were doing this podcast, it was like, um, there's not a whole lot of talent on this roster. Um, and the ones that, the, the, the talent that is there is like, mm, well, you know, like, A, are they going to play him? And B, like the Fitz Nebulous, like dudes like, um, who was the, the young guard? They had Lonnie Walker. Like Lonnie Walker had like four games this season where he averaged, where he hit like 20 or 30, 25 or 30 points. Mm. Looked really good, explosive, athletic, sweet shooter, good handle, good yeah, size. Okay. And then just, just didn't play. Yeah. Um, part of the haul that they got for getting rid of Kawhi, Jakob Pertl, um, like, like nothing. He's he a good rotation. But yeah, he's not for, you know, you're not yeah. getting Kawhi for him again. Yeah, well, exactly right. It's like they're, um, they gave a big contract to DeJounte Murray because he's, you know, like in, in their estimation, like a budding superstar. And then he, you know, he averaged 10 and four. So mm. how much of a superstar that you got Pirtle, um and great. He's, you know, he's a solid backup big. Bryn Forbes is a really good shooter. They've got all of these players who kind of, um, they've got two players in, in LMA and DeRozan who you know exactly what they give you. And then none of the other players gave you more than what you expected. Like you didn't have any of these guys break out and give you like a huge performance. It was literally, you got like the average of what you would expect from every other guy. And you mm-hmm. also got like, you know, a vintage 22 point, not shooting threes DeMar DeRozan season. And you got like, you know, Marcus Aldridge is 35 years old. And unfortunately in a team that's in a league that says, or in a conference that says, um, skilled and athletic as this one being both bad and old is not a good um, yeah. combination. So the Spurs finished, you know, you know, as we said at the top of this, um, seven and a half game, eight and a half games below their win total, which you know is quite bad. Yeah. Let's move on 
two. Now this one's going to fucking sting. <laughs> this one is gonna sting. It's yeah. the Sacramento Kings. Yeah, man. I, they had a, I've written here. This is a lot of Alessio driven hype because obviously yeah. a friend of the pod, Alessio is a Kings fan. He came on to talk about the Kings. He, he didn't talk us into it, but we were all sort of getting around the Kings in the, in the off season. It's one of those teams that, you know, you could really talk yourself into, and we did. Just uh, yeah, give us the numbers. So their preseason over under was thirty seven. <laughs> we both hit the over aggressively, thinking this is what going to be our Western Conference eight seed. They finished <laughs> with thirty six, so tantalisingly close. And a reminder that they, for most of the season, weren't as bad as maybe it seemed like they were. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just. Um, cop to it straight away if you go onto the deep two nba blog on medium which you should do the second article that i wrote is entitled "Darren fox is ready to take up the mantle as the next king of cali update <laughs> that didn't happen um, yeah. this team was bad fox missed most of the season and you absolutely hit the nail on the head in the off season when you were like mm, like why is Dwayne deadman on this team turns out that they signed him to a whopping, whopping contract <laughs> that paid him $13 million per year. Um, and not only was he a bad fit with Marvin Bagley, who didn't play very much at anyway, all this season, yeah. but he was bad. And the best centre on their roster was a dude they signed on a minimum contract from the Suns. Dante, Sean Holmes. I wasn't, I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm so glad you did bring up <laughs> um, Dwayne Detson's point because... I was completely right. I thought Dwayne did <laughs> great when you're paying him next to nothing. But as soon as you start paying him real money, you start to realize like, hang on, this isn't a value contract because when he's in Atlanta, he's literally found money and he can shoot. But when there's money behind him, you're expecting things, there's pressure on him. And not just, I'm not just saying that he created under pressure, but look, he was a guy who outperformed his value on exactly the right year, his contract year, he cashed in with the Kings as so many bad players do. And yeah, he's no longer a Sacramento King, but yeah, good on Rashawn Holmes for being one of, if not the, if, if you're counting games actually played, you could argue that he is the best player in this Kings team, uh, which is great. If you want to win 36 games. Yeah. Um, it was concerning the lack of, progress that we saw from Marvin Bagley. Um, We don't need to have a super long discussion about how they passed on probably three players who have um, proven that they would have been a better pick at number two in that draft. Um, Number three was Luka Doncic, number four, Jaron Jackson Jr. and number five, Trey Young, any of which would have been a better pick. Um, Bagley missed a lot of time um, and, you know, through two seasons, um, he's played a total of 75 games. So that's really bad. Um, He didn't look particularly good um, this season. It was pretty much stagnant in terms of his growth as a player from one year to the next. Um, The physical tools are still there um, in terms of, you know, like the things that people were talking about when he came um, into the draft where they're like, this guy is a great rebounder. He has such good touch around the basket. His second jump is elite, but those sorts of things didn't translate enough 
to success when he was on the court and so often he was off the court. Mm-hmm. Um, this team had so much success the season before under Dave Yeager running a supercharged run and gun system with De'Aaron Fox as the engine. Uh, Luke Walton, despite saying, no, no, like we should definitely keep this going and run really fast and that's what I want to do. Um, their pace cratered to um, lower than league average after being, I think they were second in the league last year mm. in pace. So um, they really, really got away from what they um, wanted to do uh, or what the, where they had had success um, previously. And yeah, I mean, the the whole <laughs> Buddy Heald and Bogdan Bogdanovich thing, like you signed Heald to... $106 million contract. He, he plays reasonably well um, in, in a tough season for everyone. And then um, he's benched near the end of the season for Bogey Bogdanovich. And there's talk, you know, Bogdanovich himself was shocked at the trade deadline. And then there's talk of like, well, he's healed on the way out. Like, you know, in the off season, yeah. can you get Buddy healed for a decent offer? It was a very kind of... Juju. Yeah, in, in, a, in a kind of like inverse way for the Suns, where with the Suns, it was like really good to see um, that they were doing really well. But then at the end of the season, you look on the standings and they are where you expected them to be. Yeah. Uh, the Kings, it seemed like everything was going really badly. But they still, you know, they're not as bad as I thought they were, you know, record-wise. They you know, crack out at around in the ballpark of 500. So, yeah. um, you know, it's not all bad news. Well, if you remember, the two teams that went to India were Indiana and Sacramento Kings, and they both started off very poorly with very poor records at the start of the season. The Kings actually got off you know, to a blistering zero and five start. So if you remove those first five games, they finished the season 28 and 31, right? which is fine. Like It's still a bad record, but like that bad and slow start really sort of hampered them from the get-go. Um, and then, yeah, just before we finish up, if you were a prospective team and if the money is completely equal, would you rather Buddy Heald or Bogan, uh, Bogey Bogdanovich? Buddy Heald and it's not close. Really? Yeah. I would go Bogdanovich. Mm. But we can discuss this at another time because we've got teams to get to. <laughs> <laughs> and we can say like that for a little than, Bigger than the overall squad. A little debate out. All right, let's move on. Yeah, yeah. Next up, we've got, speaking of Ingram, the New Orleans Pelicans, um, who had a preseason uh, over under buoyed by the hype of Zion Williamson set at 39 and they finished with 36. You get the feeling that if they had of played out the rest of the season they would have gone on a bit of a run because obviously we talked about it and you would doubtless have heard it elsewhere Zion Williamson is back in the lineup <laughs> and over the remainder of the season the Pelicans had the easiest schedule in the NBA so they were predicted to make a roaring run at the eight seed and finish you know at least 500 so mm-hmm. um, unfortunately the consequence of a global pandemic is that they don't get to do that we both hit the under um, not wanting to believe the hype and maybe more through luck than actual sheer shrewd NBA analysis we were both like. Yeah, well, listening back on my notes, I yes, I'm going to love getting the point for hitting the under here, but listening back on my notes, I was so wrong. Um, a couple of things that I'd said was 
great, this team is all the bad parts of the Lakers, which is, you know, it's not all the bad parts because obviously Kyle Kuzma is still on the Lakers. But I wasn't a fan of Brandon Ingram. You were really high on him. I just didn't believe that, you know, it was all predicated on the shooting. He had proved he could be silky and get to the lane. And, you know, you hope that he can eventually learn to finish as he as he grows up and grows into his body. But, look, the shooting was just incredible this season. He hit a very high percentage. I think it was near 40% on a very high clip, which is something he hadn't done before. So good on him for just improving as a player. But another thing that I said is this team could completely embrace the youth movement. And this is before Zion got injured. So I was imagining this team starting with Drew Holiday um, Derek Favors, uh, obviously Zion Williamson and all the young guys that they have. But I imagined when they got off to a slow start because there's all these good teams around them like the Kings and the Warriors that <laughs> they wouldn't be making the playoffs. And then they'll say, well, look, we've got this trade cheap in Drew Holiday, which we, we still heard a lot of buzz around trading Drew Holiday. Um, they've got this trade chip in Drew Holiday. Derek Favors can be worth something. You've got all these guys that are not in the same timeline as the Lonzo Balls and the... Jackson Hayes, who, who <laughs> we didn't expect him to have uh, as interesting as an all-star weekend, as we obviously can't really predict that. But if anyone wants to have a bit of a giggle, Google his video that he put up on Twitter um, when he didn't get selected for the rookie game in the all-star weekend. But yeah, so I was saying that they're going to go for, uh, they could go for um, a bit of a youth movement if they didn't see that this team was going to go anywhere while having sort of two windows here with the Drew Holiday as point guard and Lonzo Ball as point guard. But look, I think I'm, after watching this season, I'm happy with them never trading Drew Holiday, never trading Derek Favors. I think I've, I've spoken about this before. When it comes to centers, you can grab you know a capable center like Marquise Chris or even like an Andrew Bogut, someone like that, who Andrew Bogut has proven he can win on a championship team. You don't need your... You don't need your starting center to finish the game. If you've got a transcendent player like who's someone that you hope to be drafting, like a Zion or a Draymond Green, or just you know, you can you can f- like have center by committee. So I'm happy with this team just growing as they are, which is having all their young guys grow together with Zion. Obviously, Zion's included in that, and maybe Drew Holiday wins a championship when he's 35 years old, and Zion is the best player in the world. I'm going to go into next season not thinking that there's going to be an absolute fire sale for New Orleans players when it comes to the next trade deadline and look this team has proven that they can be fun exciting and I want to see them grow together but yes I also get a point for hitting the under I think this team's going to be a playoff team next year because Zion was as good as advertised in only like 11 games. Mm. Um, you, I touched on it kind of before um, when I was talking about DeJounte Murray getting that contract and a few other people who got the, that contract. One name who I didn't mention at that time was Brandon Ingram, who um, they it didn't did extend. Mm. Um, so now he's obviously going to be a max player. You have to pony up because he was an all-star and averaged 25 points a game on um, high volume, high efficiency from mm-hmm. literally everywhere. Um, but yeah, like you, you mentioned a couple of the vets, Drew Holiday is the big one. Uh, you got Derek Favors as well. And then someone like JJ Redick, who maybe doesn't play quite as important a role going forward, but could definitely still, you know, be valuable in parts. But they've also got, you know, young dudes like um, Lonzo Ball and Josh Hart played really well Uh the second half of the season, rookie Nikel Alexander Walker looks really good. So this team has 
uh, a really bright future and they just feel really stylistically aligned under uh, Alvin Gentry, uh, you know, someone who wants to push the pace on the fast break like Lonzo um, and then a bunch of athletic finishers and shooters around him is like really, really good, uh, at least for their transition offense. And then having a good isolation scorer like Ingram to kind of like, you know, go to when the play breaks down um, and on defense, they're just all jumpy and long. So I've got a lot of optimism for this team. And I would think, barring some like cataclysmic overrating of them um, next preseason, I will be hitting over rather than under. But yes, like you, I'm very happy to catch that point. Let's move on to a really disappointing team from this season, the Portland Trailblazers. Yeah. Who, um, yeah, are fresh off of their... Western Conference Finals <laughs> appearance, uh, which according in the estimation of some made them the second best team in the West last season. Uh, believe that, if you will. They had a preseason over-under of 47.5. They topped out with 36. We both hit the over thinking that this is going to be another high 40s, low 50s season in the Rip City, but um, they never really recovered from the absence of Yusuf Nurkic and then when Zach Collins went down injured very early on in the season it was uh, what's the opposite of all systems go all systems all not systems. going it was all systems <laughs> shut down it was bad to the point where uh, they reached into the free agency market to sign somebody who a lot of people thought was never getting another go um, and they signed Mellow so you know that things weren't going great. Yeah. No indictment on Mello, like, really. Like, I don't want to come at him too hard. He averaged 15 points and did a lot more, I think, than a lot of people oh, thought that. Than I predicted. Yeah. You know, he's almost 36. A lot of people were like, this dude just cannot play. And he, he was okay. Like, he, he wasn't efficient, but he filled a role that, um, that they needed. But you, know, you knew that when they signed him in, like, December or whatever it was holy fucking shit, this season is like down the toilet already for this team. <laughs> yeah. um, and despite Damian Lillard's uh, crazy oh. scoring run, um, you know, where he had that like six-game stretch where he was averaging like 42 points or something, um, they, um, they never quite recovered enough to um, make a realistic run at that eight seed. Like it always felt like it was going to be either the Pelicans or the Grizzlies. They end up wedged in between the two of them, but you know, um, they're three and a half games back of the Grizzlies, and the, they they finish um, tied in the win column um, with the Pelicans. Uh, so, yeah, like when, when it came down to the predictions, it was very much like you and I were thinking: if this team stays the same, not not being a Western Conference uh, Finals team, if this team stays the same as just a good team. The teams around them can shuffle about, whether that be the Spurs slightly uh, drop off, uh, maybe the Warriors fall out and the Kings come in. If And we didn't really expect Dallas to jump up as they did. Luka Doncic become an MVP candidate and all that. Um, but something that really hurt our number was Zach Collins missing a lot of time. And then it comes back to the same argument uh, I mentioned before with the King, uh, sorry, with the, with the Suns. When you... Miss out, obviously, they're already missing Yusuf Nurkic, and then you bring in Hassan Whiteside, who was worse than both, both you and I predicted. Um, but if you get rid of him, and then Zach Collins is the guy that's going to come in and soak up the minutes, then Zach Collins goes down, then you've got Skel Labissier and 
is Caleb Swan going to still on the team? I don't even know. Um, and then you're like, ooh. And then Rodney Hood also went down for an end-of-season injury. And you've got, who was it? They, they started with Kent Bazemore, then they flipped him for Trevor Ariza in one of the more puzzling trades of the season. But it's just they went from thin at the wing, thin at the big positions. They obviously missed Yusuf Nurkic. They missed Zach Collins. They missed their other wing depth. And, yeah, same argument as Phoenix. When you, when you get rid of the starting guy, and then you bring up the next guy in, and sometimes even if the next guy in gets injured, that makes you extremely thin. And are two positions that were depending on subpar players. And kudos to Damian Lillard for pulling this team as far as he could. And even 36 wins with also CJ missing a couple of games is very respectable. But, I mean, so be it. It's not really Damian's fault. Or it's not really Portland's fault as a team that they underperformed this win win expectation. I think if they were fully healthy, they could have definitely done it. They were relying, I think, on someone like Anthony Simons to have a bigger impact than they ended up doing. He was another dude kind of like Derek White, who um, a lot of preseason hype, especially after he dropped 40 in the last game of the season last year. And then he came into the season and did pretty much exactly what he'd done the year before. Like there was no real noteworthy growth as a player, uh, no real st- statistical impression left. Um, and then, yeah, they were, they were thin on the wings. Um, you know, trading for Trevor Ariza indicates that you're pretty thin on the wings. Um, yeah, CJ, I think, he, while he missed time, it, it was, uh, it, it really looked like Dame's kind of shown that like when the ecosystem around him isn't calibrated perfectly, guess what? He's still going to hit 10 threes and go for 50. Um, whereas CJ kind of wilted, it seemed like he wilted a little bit. There weren't as many games where he was providing like dynamic um, and dangerous secondary scoring uh, like he has in seasons past and like he did last playoffs when it propelled them to the Western Conference Finals. So I think they won't panic. Um, they'll try and solidify depth, but they'll be pretty comfortable going into the next season with their um, with Nurkic uh, as you know, part of their big three along with Dame and CJ and then someone like Zach Collins back, Anthony Simons and this year a little a year older and and hopefully get a couple of nice reserve players. Hmm. But yeah, hopefully but I mean, I don't really believe in the Trailblazers as a championship contender, but maybe they can be a contender for 44 wins next season. Yeah, well, I mean, anything to get them in the playoffs and then maybe it's damn time and all of a sudden they're in the conference finals again. I don't think it'll happen, but it's a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. All right, this is the exciting part because we're officially with the eight-seed Memphis Grizzlies in the playoff places. So we, it turns out, have the gift of the gab and have gone a little bit over what we thought we were going to do. So we're going to leave it there. And next time we're going to pick up with the eight seed Memphis Grizzlies, ready to look at the absolute cream of the crop in the Western Conference with the playoff seeds. Uh, Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time. Thank you.